0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you this morning. Ephesians 5 is where we're going to be, so if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. So I'll never forget the uh, the moment where I am standing at the front of this church, and you know, friends, family, my pastor's there, God himself is there, you know, and the the Back doors to this church swing open, and there comes this beautiful bride, Laura. I mean, beautiful inside and out. She walks down the aisle. Um, You know, she joins me up in front of this church. And in that moment, before God and our friends and family, we said, I do. We stepped into this covenant called marriage. And so we had an incredible night. Uh, Then, you know, the next day we left for a honeymoon, just an incredible week-long honeymoon, and then we got home. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> then we got home. And that began really what was uh, the start of a really, you know, sometimes painful, sometimes pleasurable journey of growing to, for, like, into learning. Like, what does it mean to love a woman? In particular, this, this one that God has given me, Lord, what does it mean to love her? What does, it, what does it look like to love her? And I laugh about this when I think about it, that a week before we got married, I was living in a fraternity house with 65 guys in this fraternity house. I went a whole year and did not wash my bed sheets. And I thought that was normal. Right? I mean, this is, this is where I came from. I mean, I, I'm walking down the hall to my room, and I think it's perfectly normal to be stepping over you know, pizza boxes and last week's trash to get to the room. That's what I'm bringing into marriage, these sort of expectations and, and, and norms. And then all of a sudden, I wake up, and I am sleeping next to a woman and living next to a woman. You know, and, and here's what you know, I quickly learned. I, I don't think any marriages intend to struggle when they start out, but all marriages do. And when we say I do to, you know, a spouse, I don't think many of us have in our mind that we are also saying I do to something that's going to get us to the absolute end of ourself. I don't think most of us go into marriage that way, but all marriages get there. And here's the reason. Think about what marriage is. In marriage, God takes a man and a woman. Let's just acknowledge right off the, the you know, cuff that they're really different, aren't they? I mean, they are different people there, a man and a woman. He takes a man and a woman who even the best of them, they're gonna have hearts that are shot through with sin. So he takes a very different person and he, he puts these two people in a house and, and their sin starts to, to mesh together. And he puts them under one roof and says, figure all that out. Welcome to the struggle of marriage, Right? I mean, it does not take long for fireworks to erupt, bullets to fly, right? I mean, just hurt feelings and wounds that go really deep. All that stuff happens really quickly in marriage. You know, when I think of marriage, I think it just got a unique ability to amplify who we are and who we're not and amplify our desperate need for grace. Another way that I would talk about it is marriage has a unique capacity for both glory and the glory, A unique capacity for both of those two things glory on one side and a lot of gore on the other. Marriage has that. And you know, we're five years old as a church family now. And I think it's fair to say that over the last five years, we have had some of the glory of what marriage can be in our church family, and we have had a whole lot of the glory of what marriage can be inside of our church family. That when I think about the pastoral load, the crisis moments in our church, so much of them have revolved around marriages. That I think it would be, you know, accurate to say that, that over the last five years, if I were to pinpoint one area where I think Satan and our enemy has been most active, where there's been the most sort of demonic activity and the schemes of Satan directed at this thing, marriage would be it. And that's part of the reason that we're doing the Paul trip marriage conference at the end of this month and that we want you to go. We want to be proactive in helping our church family in this area. And it's uh, one of the reasons I want to, to preach this sermon this morning. As we look at Ephesians 5 and allow God to press into us some massively important things about marriage. So in Ephesians 5, we're going to look at this in three categories. We're going to look at, at marriage and its meaning, marriage and men, and then marriage and women. So, we're going to start off with marriage and its meaning. So, this is where we're going to pick it up in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 31. Starting in verse 31. 31, 32, and 33, they kind of form a summary statement of everything that Paul has previously said about marriage. So, he's summing it up in these last three verses when he says this. Verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now think about what Paul's doing here. He's quoting from Genesis 2.24. So he's pointing us back to Genesis 2. And in Genesis 2, here's kind of the context. Um, God looks at Adam and says, it's not good for you to be alone. So he, he puts Adam to sleep. He breaks off a rib and he forms Eve from that broken rib. Adam wakes up one rib down, but gaining a wife, and he erupts with joy. He writes the first line of human poetry. He says, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's this beautiful moment where he's looking at, at this woman that God has created for him and just overwhelmed with joy. And then God, in, in Genesis two twenty four, takes Eve and as her father walks her down the aisle, and then as both Adam and Eve's pastor performs the wedding ceremony in Genesis chapter 2. Now, the question is, why is Paul pointing us back to this moment in Genesis 2? I think here's the answer. He is reminding us in Ephesians 5.31 where marriage's kind of origins are, that that God designed marriage, that marriage is God's design. He's clarifying that for us. He wants us to see that marriage is not a man-made idea, that it is a God-made thing. That that before you ever existed, before sin ever happened, God imagined marriage and it existed. Now that leads us to the million dollar question. Why would God create marriage? What what is it for? If God designed it, what is God up to in it? Why did he create it? And through church history, theologians have have spent a lot of time answering this question in a very robust way. So part of their answer is is stuff like this. It's about companionship. And there's no doubt marriage is... Partly about that. It's one of its purposes is to provide friendship for people. So if you think about Genesis 1 and 2, marriage is created when God looks at Adam and says, it's not good for you to be alone. So I'm going to create a suitable helper for you. And here comes Eve and marriage. So companionship is no doubt a big part of that. Recreation is another part of that. Childbearing. That, that part of what marriage is, is marriage provides boundaries around, God, around God's blessings to be fruitful and multiply. It, it provides the boundary around that. Here's, here's where you can be fruitful and multiply. You do that in the context of marriage. So marriage is for child rearing and, and recreation. But there's also this sin uh, you know, fighting component of marriage and purpose of marriage where Paul to the Corinthians says, get married so you don't burn in your lust." But there's also this sin fighting and this, you know, marriage is meant to make us more holy component to it. And all of those things are true about marriage. Those are all reasons for marriage. It's part of the purposes of God in marriage. But they're not ultimate. Those are all true, but not ultimate. The biggest thing we can say about the purpose of marriage is in Ephesians 5.32. Paul cuts it right to the core when he says, this is what marriage is about. Verse 32, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is designed by God to display the good news of God. Marriage is designed by God to display the gospel. This is the reason that God made marriage. There is some mysterious relationship that that somehow marriage on one hand and the good news of Jesus on the other have this relationship where they're explaining one another, where they're giving meaning to one another, where they're they're showing one another, where they're telling things about one another. It's got that sort of a relationship. You know, Paul is saying here in just really clear language that your marriage— Every marriage is meant to display the good news of Jesus, to tell the truth about the good news of Jesus. This is the most important thing you can know about marriage, that your marriage is designed by God to be a window through which people can look and see a crucified and risen Savior who has rescued a bride and will one day return for his bride. That is what your marriage is designed by God to do. Marriage is the premier metaphor in the Bible for the good news of Jesus. The premier metaphor. So, so in marriage, the, the man has this unique role of showing the world, of telling the truth about how God loves his bride, the church. And the, the, the wife has this unique role and opportunity in marriage to show the world, to tell the truth to the world about the, how, how the church should wholeheartedly respond to the pursuing love of God. See, This is what's happening in marriage. Okay, now I want to just be as clear as I can about this little point here. This is not just kind of an interesting perspective on marriage. This is the essence of marriage. This This is when you like drill a hole right down into the center of marriage. This is what marriage is about. It is about the display of the good news of Jesus. Now, the question becomes, is that how you think about your marriage or a future marriage? Do you see marriage like that? And now, let's just think about this culturally. There's no doubt in our culture that we are dazed and confused when it comes to our view of marriage. There's been a a real, what you might call just a fundamental shift in how people view marriage. It has gone from primarily covenantal in, in purpose and meaning, so in other words covenantal you know the covenantal nature of marriage is like it's for God it's for the good of my spouse it's for the good of society at large it's covenantal in nature it's gone from primarily being that to in our culture primarily being consumeristic in nature where in our culture marriage is if it if it doesn't fulfill me I'm out if it doesn't serve me and my agenda I'm I'm gone Listen to one lady. She writes for the New York Times. She wrote a, an article uh, called The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage. And listen to how she describes, and I think this is an accurate you know, representation of how our culture thinks about marriage. Listen to how she describes it. She says, The notion that the best marriages are those that bring satisfaction to the individual may seem counterintuitive. It is unbiblical, so I hope it's counterintuitive. After all, isn't marriage supposed to be about putting the relationship first? That's covenantal language. It's about, the, it's about my spouse first. It's about God first. It's covenantal in this way. She goes on, not anymore. For centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic and social institution. And the emotional and intellectual needs of the spouses were secondary to the survival of the marriage itself. But in modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership and they want partners who make their lives more interesting, who help each of them attain valued goals. See, that that is how our culture thinks about it. So it's not, it's no longer that the needs of my spouse and my spouse and God come first. It's no longer that it's my needs come first. It's what's in this for me, that's first. It's this consumeristic view of marriage. This is the dominant way our culture thinks about it. Now, in 15 years of pastoral ministry, here is the sad thing for me to realize. It is also the number one thing I confront in the church in regards to marriage. This is not just the way our culture thinks about marriage. This is the way people inside the church think about marriage that we have, we've lost our biblical view of what marriage is for. That It's for the glory of God and the display of the gospel primarily. That's the primary purpose of our marriage. So let me just kind of press this uh, you know, into you. I want you to answer the question, what is your marriage about? When you think about marriage, what is it for? In, in premarital counseling, our first kind of homework assignment that we'll have couples do is write a letter to one another explaining why they're about to marry The other one, why why they're about to to marry their spouse. And here's what we're listening for when they're describing why are they about to say I do to this lady or this man? Is it covenantal in in nature or is it consumeristic? Are they in it for what they can get out of it and kind of their temporal wants and, and fulfillment? Or are they in it based on what they can give primarily to God and to this person? How do you see your marriage? Just imagine for a second if somebody slides a piece of paper in front of you and they ask you to write the the answer, like your your description. Why are you married right now? Why do you want to be married? What, What do you hope your marriage does and is doing? What's the purpose of your marriage? How would you answer that? Now listen, if your answer is anything less than my marriage is designed by God, to glorify God, to display the good news of Jesus. If it's anything less than that, then your marriage is falling short of its intended design. It's falling short of that. Your marriage is not going to be what God would have it be unless we get to the place where we're seeing that God designed it and he designed it to display the good news of Jesus. This is the reason he has gifted you marriage. It's the reason that he he allowed you to walk into this thing. It's the reason he created it. Now, is that the way that you see it? Do you see your marriage through this lens? That it is for God primarily, not for me primarily. That it's not consumeristic, it's covenantal. Do you see it that way? This is marriage and meaning. Now, let's address the men. Look at verse 33. In verse 33, Paul begins by addressing men and marriage. And he's going to sum up what he has just said to men. And he does it like this, verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let each one of you love his wife as himself. So men, I want you to look at me right in the eye here. We're about to have the conversation for the next few minutes. Men, if you have if been blessed with the gift of marriage, God has gifted you with a unique opportunity to show a picture to the world about how God loves the church. You've been gifted with that opportunity to tell the truth about that in the way that you love your wife. God has given you that opportunity. This is what he's getting at in verse 23 when he says, for the husband is the head of the wife. Now listen to the comparison in verse 23. Even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Do you see that? He's saying in this marriage relationship, you get to show a picture of God's covenantal love to the church. You get to operate as this head in your house, as this pastor in your home. And you get to show people how good of a pastor Jesus is in the way that you're pastoring your home in the way that you're working in your home. You get to be that sort of a head. Now in verse 23, when it's talking about you're, you're the head of your home, if you're a man and you read that, that should send just a chill down your spine that God would look at you and say, let me, let me throw this responsibility on your shoulders. Let, let me entrust this role to you of telling the truth about how God loves the church. Let, let me throw that in, in your direction. That is weighty stuff. And if you want this summary, kind of the, the one statement summary, maybe in three words of what it means to do that, what it means to image forth a picture of God to the world in the way that you interact with your wife, here's how Paul says it in verse 33. Here's the way you do that. You love your wife. Those three words. You love your wife. Those three words would... would you know, maybe be the picture. They, they would put in one bag, in, one, in you know, one three-word sentence, the thing that God has put onto the shoulders of men. Love your wife, the shoulders of husbands. And by God's grace, he's looking at every husband and saying, by my grace, that's the load. You're to wake up every day for the rest of your life. And by my grace, carry. Amen. This is the role that a man plays in his home, to love his wife. To, to give his life away to his family. To die to himself to do it. To give his life away to serve and to love, to protect his wife. Okay, now the question is, what does that look like? What, what does that look like in a marriage? Now, Paul gives us some help here. So he's going to give us kind of some pointers on what it means to, to love your wife. And he's going to tell us really two things in big, broad categories. You see the ver- first one in verse 33. Look at what it says. Let each one of you love his wife, how? As himself. So so we love our wife as you love yourself. This is how husbands love their wife, as they love themselves. Now, because we live in a culture that is self-esteem crazy and not to like deflate anyone's bubble, but that is not a biblical idea. That is an unbiblical category. So, so, we live in this culture that is so self esteem crazy that I feel like we need to clarify what this means when he says to love your wife as you love yourself. Paul is not looking at a husband and saying, Here's what you need to do you need to love yourself more so you can love your wife more. That's not what he's saying. He, this is not a command to love yourself more, husbands. It, Paul is assuming you already love yourself plenty. Okay, that's the issue. See, th- Marriage problems, really the human problem, is not one of self hate. It's one of self love, and when you know self love, when things are going well and you're getting what you want, looks like what we would call high self esteem. It looks like kind of pride and arrogance. But when self love, that same heart of self love, is not getting what it's want, you know what it wants, it's not getting its way. Then it doesn't look like what we would call high self esteem. It looks like what we would call low self esteem. It looks like what we would call like self loathing and despair. But underneath both of those, high and low self-esteem is a deep, radical commitment to self-love. And the only solution to that sort of self-love is the good news of Jesus. Now, when Paul says, husbands, love your wives as you love yourself, here's what he's inviting husbands to do. He's inviting husbands to take a look at their life and to see all the ways that they love themselves. You know how like a husband will demand that they're heard. They'll demand their rights. They just can't let that thing go, you know? They're gonna make sure that they've got what they need. They're gonna make sure that that their little wants are satisfied. They're gonna make sure that they get food at the end of the day. He's asking you, inviting you, to look at all the ways that self-love shows itself in your life. And then he's saying this, now turn that self-love that you have for yourself, turn that around and love your wife like that. That's the model for you to love your wife like. I, I like how one guy said it. He said, Paul's really inviting us to do this. He's saying that, that I want you to meet the needs of your wife with all the energy, with all the delight, with all the creativity and all the consistency with which you meet your own needs. So just like you would approach your own needs and meeting them with creativity and delight and energy, that's how we're to meet the needs of our wife. Maybe you can think about it like this. What what Paul is doing is he is applying the golden rule to marriage. He's saying, men, put yourself in the shoes of your wife and and pretend for a moment like you're her. Now love her like you would want to be loved if you're her. That's how a man is to love his wife. But then look at verse 25. In verse 25, he ratchets it up another notch. He, he now is saying, it's not just about you loving your wife as you love yourself. Now, here's the model of love. A husband is to, to love his wife as he has been loved by Jesus. As Jesus has loved him. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So so now it's not, hey, you meet the needs of your wife with all the energy and creativity that, that, that you meet your own needs with. It's not that now. It's now you meet the needs of your wife with all of the energy, delight, creativity, and consistency with which Jesus has met your needs. Now hear that, men. Is that not a sobering thing to think about? That the calling of headship is to lay your life down, meeting the needs of your wife, just like Jesus has laid his life down to meet yours. This is what it means to be a godly husband, a biblical head, a biblical pastor in your home. This is what it means to do that. Now, I I wish we had more time to talk about what, what it means to love like Jesus loved. But let me just read 25, 26, and 27. It just gives us a snapshot. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. You know, there's so much to say about that. Let me just point out too, part of what it means to love your wife as Jesus has loved you means that, that just like Jesus loved the church first, you're to love your wife first. Like like part of what Paul is saying is Jesus has loved the church first. Like it was this initiating sort of a love. It was this love that that came after, that pursued even when we weren't responding. See, God has loved us with a love that was before our response to it. See, it's that sort of an initiating love. The love with which Jesus has for the church is not a reactive love, but an initiating love. And husbands, this is the sort of way you're to love in your home that you're to be the person that takes the initiative. You're always taking the initiative to move your family toward what God would want for your marriage and your wife toward what what God would want for your marriage. And you're always taking the initiative to move your marriage away from the things that God would not want for it. It's taking that sort of initiative. I heard one time, one of my favorite pastors, he was on a panel and someone asked him, uh, you know, kind of the question of, can you just kind of give a practical idea of what it means to be a good head in the home? a good pastor, a biblical husband in the home. And he looked back and he said, you know, I I think it really means that you're saying let's. And you're doing that a lot. So you're saying, let's romance, let's date. let's, Let's address this thing that needs to be addressed. Let's go after this lingering problem that we're having. Let's, let's get after this, let's do family devotions, let's read the Bible together, let's pray together. It's your consistently saying yes, or let's. It's you consistently initiating like that, saying let's a lot. Now, I, I think when we're talking about this idea of loving first in the context of a marriage and this being a man's role in a marriage, I think it really uh, exposes what I would call the two primary ditches that men find themselves in in a marriage. And let me just describe these two ditches. Ditch number one that men oftentimes fall into is what we might call the dominant ditch. It's taking headship and trying to distort headship into meaning that you're now the dictator in your home. So it's my way or the highway. It's this sort of a brutal, sort of a lack of tenderness, sort of a love. And listen, men in the room, if that's you, please repent, please. You know, when I think about what's happening in the context of your marriage, Right now, if that's you, you are doing unspeakable damage to your family and in particular, your wife. So please repent. Now, I don't think that is the ditch where most of the men in this room are or most of the men in our culture are. I think, you know, if if I were preaching to a group of, of men... A few decades ago or a few centuries ago, I would really camp on the dominant ditch. But I don't think that's our primary ditch today. I think, I, I think we've moved. And for most people in our culture, most men in our culture, they're not in the dominant ditch. They're in the second ditch, the ditch of indifference. That they have followed in the footsteps of Adam. You remember Genesis chapter 3, what, what Adam's doing in Genesis 3? See, he's very passive. When his wife is being deceived by the serpent, he is standing back, arms folded, observing it passively, not not actively. And I think a lot of our men have fallen into the same ditch. We've fallen into the shoes of Adam where when our wife is being deceived and our marriage is disintegrating on sin, we are so passive and it's like we don't even care. It's like the will, like we've taken the hands off the wheels of the marriage and just allowing the marriage to careen from one curb to the next. It's just this indifference, this lack of care, this withdrawal. Everything is more important to the indifferent guy than actually getting his marriage healthy. Everything's more important. And this is where so many of our marriages are. And men, let me just encourage you. There is nothing more important than you prioritizing a healthy marriage. Nothing is more important than that. Think about this Genesis 3 moment. Have you ever asked yourself the question, what should Adam have done? In that moment, how should he have reacted? His wife is being deceived by the serpent. She's just eating the forbidden fruit. Rather than going along with it in his indifference and going in and eating the fruit with her, how should he have responded? I love what N.D. Wilson, author and writer in his book, Death by Living, I love how he describes what Adam should have done. He says it this way. He says he if he would have been looking, what he should have done is look at Adam the second, Jesus. Adam the first should have looked down the road at Adam the second and taken his cues from 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 him, from Jesus. And if he would have done that, here's what Adam would have done. He would have looked at Eve, seen her curse, seen her enemy, and gone after that serpent with pure and righteous wrath. And after he broke the back of the serpent, he would have then turned to face the pure and righteous wrath of God himself, the righteous wrath that he had just imaged forth in dealing with the serpent. And he would have said something quite simple, something that would be said by another thousands of years later. He would have looked up at God and said, take me instead. See, this is what it means for a man to love first. It means that he's taking that sort of initiative. It means that we're taking our cues from Adam II, Jesus, in the way that we're pursuing our wives. But it's not just a, a love that's first. Jesus also loved the church sacrificially. Look at verse 25 again. It says, he gave himself up for her. Like Loving the church cost Jesus his life. Now, in premarital counseling, I love to create this moment Well, I'll ask the guy the question, so uh, are you ready to get married? And they always say yes to that. Are you ready to get married? Yes. My next question is, so are you ready to die? And that's where like the, I don't know about that comes in. That's where the shock and awe comes in. And listen, this drives right into the middle of the major marriage issues that we all have. Men, look at me here. here Here's what every man wants in his marriage. He wants marriage without a death. Now, I want every man to look at me in the eye. When you say I do to a woman, you are saying I do to your death. This is part of what it means to image forth Jesus in your marriage. It means that just like Jesus, you crawl up on the cross too, and you allow the spikes to be driven right through your dreams and ambitions. You allow the spikes to be driven right through your personal little agendas in life, right through all of your small little things that you want to do, right through your, I've got to be the scratch golfer guy, and like I'm going to spend all my time there rather than in the family. It's you driving a stake through all of those things so you can love that lady. To love anyone, in particular a spouse, it requires a death to yourself. This is what it requires It requires you to give up your life so that you can love her, for you to lose your life so you can love that woman. When you say I do, you are saying I do to death. It's a packaged deal. Now, here's what happens in the heart of every man when you hear this. In the heart of every man, there is something, because the old flesh is in us, there is something that says, but I don't wanna die. I'm not in for that. And let me just hold out the hope for you in this. It's through that death that you actually get to life. It is through that death that God actually grows you up into a biblical man that is imaging forth Jesus to the world. But it requires that death to get there. That death to your preferences, that debt to your little agendas, that debt to you know your little days and weeks always organized around what you want to do in life. It takes a death to all of that to get to what God wants for you. This is the biblical paradox. When you lose your life, in particular in the context of marriage, when you lose your life, that's how you get it. That's how you gain it. It's by you crawling up on the cross and dying that God invites you into actually living. So, men, are you there? Are you wanting that? Are you pursuing that? You know, I, I love how, uh, you know, in this passage it shows the fruit of this love. Look at verse 26 and 27. This sort of love that comes first, this sort of love that, that gives up his life so that the church can grow. Look at what it produces in 26 and 27. It produces this cleansing. It sanctifies the church. It produces this moment where Jesus is going to present the church to himself in splendor with no spot or blemish or any stain. It produces that sort of result. And men, I want you to hear this. That is what your love toward your wife is supposed to create in her and cause in her. I love how Dave, he's one of our pastors. He always uses this imagery when he's talking about marriage with people. He says, uh, you know, as a man in a marriage and as a husband in in your marriage, what God has called you to be, he uses this imagery of a big oak tree. This is what God has called you to be as a man, a big oak tree, where your family can take up shade underneath you, where your family can grow underneath you, where your family can be safe, in particular your wife can be safe underneath you, and where your wife can flourish. Now, men, I want you to ask this question to yourself. Are you creating a culture in your marriage where your wife can flourish spiritually, physically, emotionally, where she can just come to life and flourish? Now, let me just cast vision for this. This is what God's inviting you into. This is what he's equipped you for. This is what he's made you for in your marriage to do that, to be this big oak tree where you die to yourself, where you love your wife first so that you can provide this shade so that your wife can grow and bloom and blossom and become all that God has created her to be. That's what God has created you to be in your marriage. Look back at verse 33. Here's marriage and women. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And here comes the ladies. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. To all the ladies, you have been given this unique role in your marriage. It's different than the guys. You've been given this unique role to image forth what it looks like for the church to respond wholeheartedly to the pursuing love of God in the way you respond to your husband. And just to sum that up, what does it mean to do that? Like verse 22 is a part of that. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. That's one way of describing it. And we've spent a lot of time on this. You can go back into our Ephesians series and First Peter series to, to, for us to kind of unpack all the cultural misconceptions and the biblical you know, beauty of this. But I think a good way to sum up what verse 22 means is this. You respect your, your husband. This is the calling of God on a wife. In the context of a marriage, it's that you look at this husband that God has granted you and you learn how to respect him. Now now the question becomes, what does that mean to, to respect a husband? I think you could think about it in these sort of terms. That means to notice him, to regard him, to honor him, prefer him, to defer to him, to encourage him and admire your husband. This is all part of what it means to respect him. Last night, I asked Lori to write down the top five, six, seven, eight reasons or kind of ways that she felt like wives could could respect their husbands. And I wanna read you the the top four of that list. Here's what she said last night. I think she's just spot on in all of these. She said, respecting your husband means that you think well of him. That's an internal issue. That's a heart thing. That you don't allow yourself to club your husband in the head in your heart. Because if you're doing that internally, you will never be able to respect him externally. So, so it's to think well of him. Number two, she said, to speak uh, it means to speak well to him and of him. Like when you're in a room with other people and you're talking about him. When people are taking prayer requests, that you're doing all of that in a way that would honor him and respect him. You're speaking well you know, about him, but you're also speaking well to him. You, like to him, you're speaking great to him. You're affirming him. You're, you're encouraging him. Ladies, I think this is a good way to think about what your role in the context of your house is. One of the primary things that God has given you, one of the primary ministries that God has given every lady in their house is to be the primary encourager and affirmer of their husband. This is one of the gifts that God has given you to give to your husband. Now, that doesn't mean you flatter him. See, flattery is telling lies. Biblical affirmation is telling the truth. So it's not lying to him. It's it's actually telling the truth about him. So that means that for some of us in the room, when you hear you need to affirm and encourage your husband, you're thinking this, what am I going to find in this man to encourage, Right? I'm gonna to have to look really hard for this. And the truth is some of you are gonna to have to look really hard. That is the truth. But if, if the image of God is really in your man, and if he's a Christian and the spirit of God, especially if the spirit of God is in him, here's what you can know about your husband. God is doing something in him. They're doing something. I don't know what it is. And it may be real small, like that big of something. But God is doing something in your man. And your job as a lady is to find that little something and to praise him like crazy for it. To affirm him like crazy for it. I mean, you find those little evidences of grace, these these little things the Spirit of God is doing, That the the Spirit of God is pushing him, these small little steps, and you affirm that. You encourage that. You find things that he's doing. He's working hard. He built that. He won this. He did something. Just find something and encourage him with it. This is one of the primary things you can do as a wife. I I was thinking about this the other day, that uh, Laura, a few months ago, she looked at me and she said, Rodney, I was just thinking that, just being married to you has brought me so many blessings in my life. And she just went on to list three or four things that she was thinking of that just by being married to me, God had given to her. And can I just tell you what that moment did for me? If there would have been a brick wall in front of me, I would have headbutted it and run right through it. It, just, it produces that sort of a thing in a husband. Ladies, that is one of the most beautiful gifts you can give your man is to be that sort of an affirmer and an encourager uh, to him. Here's the third thing she says. It means that you join him. In other words, you find things that he likes to do and you do them. You get into his world on his turf and you join him in those things. And fourthly, she said, to, to respect your husband means that you pray for him. I, I think that there is like a direct correlation between your heart saying soft to your husband and you praying for your husband. I would attribute a lot of the tenderness that Laura and I have right now in our marriage to her prayer for our marriage. I think it sets the culture for our marriage of being very tender. And I'm so grateful for that. It's one of the things that prayer does. And you know, one of the hardest parts about this command, if you look at it, one of the hardest parts about it, you know, about it, if I just put myself in the shoes of a lady, there's no caveats. There's no like, respect him if he's respectable. Respect him if he's earned it. Respect him if he's loved you the way that you would like to be loved by him. Then you respect him. There's no caveats. The sort of of respect that Paul's talking about here and God through Paul is a respect without limit, without condition. It's not for his sake. It's for Jesus' sake that you respect him that you come after him, that you honor him, that you appreciate him, that you affirm him, that you encourage him, that you search really hard to find things to encourage. It's for Jesus' sake that you do all of that. There's no no boundaries, no conditions on this respect command. You know, in our home group, we've got just such a great picture of this. We have one couple who, they hit a really tough spot in their marriage and the man jumped out of his marriage into an affair with another lady. And he's living part in his car and part in this other lady's house. And uh, the, the lady in that, that relationship, uh, the, the wife, would go buy his car, get his laundry out of his car, do the laundry, and put it back in for him. She would leave gift cards on his, on his window. She, when she's talking to her kids about her husband who's in the middle of an affair, she would always speak well of her husband. This is what we're talking about. It's not for his sake. It's not because in that moment he was respectable. It's because Jesus is respectable that we can do that. Now, now I want you to consider, ladies, what's at stake here. I think when Paul is talking about men love your wives and wives respect your husbands, he's showing us about how God has hardwired each gender in general. These commands are specific. You're not gonna find in the Bible the command specifically to a wife to love her husband. I mean, there is the general broad command that we should all love our neighbor, but you're not gonna find anywhere in the Bible where God says specifically to a wife, love your husband's wife. It's not that, it's respect your husband. And to to the husband, it's you love your wife. See, it's, it's real spe- you know, specific command, and it's showing us about how God has hardwired us. That God has hardwired a man to want that sort of respect and admiration and cheer from his wife. And he's hardwired a lady to want that sort of security and affection and tenderness in the love of a husband. So ladies, I want you to consider what it's, what it's doing to your man to withhold that. Consider that. We had this interesting moment in our home group this last week where uh, one of the ladies in our home group, had, she'd been doing some counseling and kind of around the topic of marriage and just how she's interacting in marriage. And in that counseling session, God just really sh- put a spotlight in her heart and showed her that there is like a superiority that she feels, kind of a, a looking down upon her husband that she feels that leads to a general lack of respect toward her husband. And then the counselor looked at her and said, I want you to consider what that's doing to your husband. And in that moment, it was this beautiful moment last week as we were meeting, where she's just broken and convicted in that moment, not condemned, but convicted in that moment of, of realizing my sin has troubled the trouble of my husband. It is producing things in my husband. Ladies, can I just get you to consider this for a second? I want you to consider what your lack of respect towards your husband produces in your husband. And I'm not saying all the things are, are even fair of what it produces. A lot of that is because of the sin in his own heart. But I want you to take a moment to realize how your sin of a lack of respect is troubling the trouble of your husband. Just take a moment to realize that when you don't live in this command, it matters. Like it, it matters to your husband. That it sets a course for your husband. That it produces certain things in your husband. That God has hardwired him to to look for this there. And, And when he's not finding it there, I want you to know that this is one of the reasons that so many of our men have withdrawn from marriage. And they're trying to find respect in their work. And they're trying to find respect in their hobby. And they're trying to find respect in a million other dysfunctional places. I, mean, I think it's just good for us to consider that, that, man, when we don't show that sort of respect, it produces, it troubles the trouble in our man and our husbands. Now, I want to just tie together and we'll kind of land the plane. I want to tie together what one author calls the crazy cycle. So, how these two things interact with one another the crazy cycle. So, so here's how the crazy cycle works the man withholds love, therefore, The wife withholds respect. Therefore, the man withholds love, therefore, the wife withholds respect. You see that how the crazy cycle starts? And this little cycle gets spinning of of man withholds love, therefore she withholds respect, therefore he withholds love. And it gets spinning so fast, and it begins to cut so deep into a marriage that in a matter of just months, that a marriage can disintegrate in that cycle. And the truth is, this is where some of our marriages are headed right now in the room. And it's where many of our marriages have, are, are, like right now, currently. We, we have landed on that place of lack of love leads to lack of respect, leads to lack of love, leads to lack of respect. And I want to just end by holding out the hope for, for how that cycle can be broken. That cycle is not broken with a silver bullet. There's no quick fixes. There's no three steps to a broken cycle. The only hope we have is the good news of Jesus Christ. That is our hope. See, in this way, the the marriage is not just a gospel display thing. It is a gospel dependent thing. The, The way that cycle is broken is by a man looking to Jesus and how Jesus has deeply loved him. And then that produces in a man the capacity to love his wife. And it's a wife looking at how Jesus has come after and pursued her that produces in her the ability to respect her husband, even when she's not being loved by her husband in the way that she would want. See, it's interesting in Ephesians 5, before Paul ever gives the command to a husband to do this and a wife to do that, he spends the first three chapters of Ephesians talking about what God has done for them. So before he says, go do this, he says, but look at what's been done for you. Chapter one, God, by slaying his own son, has adopted you. By by losing his son, has brought you in and made you a son and daughter. Chapter one. Chapter two, at the cost of his own son, by, by Jesus, his own son, giving up his life, God has made you a spiritually dead and unresponsive person. A spiritually alive person who can respond to God and come alive to God. God has done that for you. In chapter 3, he's re all Christians around this idea, husbands and wives around this idea that you are so deeply loved by God. You can't comprehend the depth and the width and the height. You can't comprehend this sort of passionate love that God's given you. It's beyond comprehension, He's reminding them of what they have and what they are in Jesus before he tells them what they need to go do. And listen, this is the key to your marriage. The key to your marriage is by is growing deeper and deeper and deeper into an awareness of all that God has done to you in the person and work of Jesus. By screwing down into your heart deeper and deeper the sort of sacrificial love that God has given to you in his son. The, the sort of, Others-centeredness, the sort of, you know, respect with nothing in return. It's by realizing that that allows us to love another human being without conditions. That, That allows us to love another human being even when they don't give us what we want in return. And by God's grace, I'm praying so hard for our church family to get that. Amen? Let's pray together. we want to give you just a couple of minutes here to respond to God. You know, if you're an unbeliever in the room, if you came in this morning and you know you're not in right relationship with God, there's never been a moment where you have stepped across the line of faith. If that's you this morning, but part of what Ephesians 5 is showing us is not just horizontal marriage. It's showing us vertical marriage that God has done everything needed in his son, Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. He has done everything needed to bring you into relationship with him. So I just want to invite you this morning, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, this is your morning to repent of your sin, to turn from your sin, to turn to Jesus and throw your life upon him. This is your morning for that. And if that's you, uh, make sure you grab that black guest card under your seat, fill that out. There's a little place to mark establishing a relationship with Jesus. Put that in the offering basket, and we'd love to follow up with you this week. And for the rest of us in the room, this is what it looks like to be a godly head, godly husband. This is what it looks like to be a godly wife. And we need grace to get there, don't we? We need grace to get there. See, the only way to to like fix horizontal problems in marriage is to fix vertical problems with Jesus. And that means that the only way forward in marriage is really a way of repentance. That that is the way forward. It's you realizing your own sin and you repenting of your sin, knowing that that repentance is always met by the welcome of God. It's always met by by the mercy and grace of God. That that, That this morning, I just can't help but believe that so many of our husbands and wives need a moment of deep repentance before God. To to know that that's not all sorrow. There is sorrow that sin should produce in us when we see it and we realize what it's breaking around us and in us. But that repentance should lead us to rejoicing, knowing that God has done everything needed to cover and cleanse our sin. And I know that in so many of these moments where we're talking about marriage, there can just be this this self-condemnation well up in us as we realize all of our failures and all of our failings as a husband and as a wife. Here's the great news of grace. God doesn't pick you up where you should be, but where you are. And this would be a wonderful morning for you to start down the path of becoming more and more of what you should be. So Father, will you help us in this? God, will you work in our marriages? God, will you work in our men? Will you work in our ladies? And by your grace, can our marriages be a wonderful display of the gospel? Our marriages are speaking right now. You've designed them to talk. And God, by your grace, might you work in this place among our church family so that when our marriages talk, they tell the truth about you. And it's in your good name that we pray. Amen. You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit stonegate-church.com.